There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting through the Matrix on the 27th of May 2010. Now I always suggest you look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website. you find hundreds of hours of audio talks I've given for download for free. And while you're at it, bookmark all the other sites I have up there. These are the only official sites I have, they're mine. And you can bookmark them for future use because the com has problems once in a while. I'm also getting problems with the org right now. Some people might notice too. I'm a day late in uploading it. So uh, you have to have these other sites in order to get the latest downloads. Remember, they all carry uh, written transcripts as well in English of a lot of the shows that I've done. And the Alan Watt Sentinel site dot EU, the European site, also has transcripts in other languages as, as well as the audios as well. So you've got a whole variety to choose from. While you're at it, go into the articles for sale. That, that's how I live. I don't accept money from advertising. It's up to you to keep me going. The ads on this show are paid by advertisers to RBM for the airtime. That supplies the airtime and pays for the staff and equipment and for their bills too. So it's up to you, the audience, to keep me going. Purchase the books I have for sale. They'll help you think in a different way than you've thought before because everything's always in front of your face. It's your training that stopped you. You've been trained deliberately in the system through education and media not to, to ever really see what's happening, really happening around you or even to you. So I help you see it. There's a lot of cons in the world, and it's made up of conology, as I call it. Purchase the books, the discs, and uh, the DVDs, and that will help me trickle over. From the U.S. to Canada, you can use personal checks. You can also use an international postal money order from your post office. Cash is fine. You can also use Western Union or MoneyGram. And across the rest of the world, same idea, Western Union, MoneyGram, or you can all use PayPal for donations. If you want to purchase the, the, the material with PayPal, send a separate email along with the donation through PayPal, and I'll get it out to you. Just send me your name and address and the order in a separate email all over the world. And it's interesting how things will come to you at certain times in life, quite often, in fact, when you, you have these synchronicities, uh, things come together, things kind of implode towards you from different directions, and you can verify or see more clearly things which you already suspect or know, and you can formulate it into a more crystalline fashion. It crystallizes in front of you really what's going on in the world and how things come together. Remember, we're the last to know the big plans of the masters that rule us ever, ever. In any era, in fact, we're the last to know. Why should they tell the people at the bottom uh, when they make their living off the people at the bottom and they discard them too when they no longer need them? And you find that we are living through a preparatory phase 
worked out long ago in advance because those who own everything uh, don't wait until it runs down and runs out. They prepare for the future and for their own survivability. Elites have done this all down through history. They move on before the walls of the city goes down and the place is plundered and falls into ruin. That's traditional. And more than ever, we have seen throughout history, as you get up through the 1700s, 1900s, 20th century, 21st century, massive international interlocking meetings of very important peoples, VIPs, and their think tanks working on the strategies and the formulas for their own survivability. Now, I'm going to go into some of this tonight because it's very important to what's happening today, back after this break. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. Just talking about synchronicities and how things come along at the right time for you when you're following a certain angle and information will hit you from different sources at the same time that kind of solidify or cement the idea in your head and crystallize it into a more visible picture. But when you, when you look at deleted knowledge, as I say, they always survive catastrophes. They move on. And we find in World War I, for instance, that the scale of the war with the aerial bombardments too that were used for the first time and the incredible destruction they could, they could, they could uh, heap upon whole cities in their path and destroy them all uh, got the big boys themselves a bit worried. And since then, of course, they've had many, many meetings to, on, on preparatory plans for saving themselves should anything happen. And you find during World War II, for instance, the elite of Britain and their all families had, uh, they had these full-time RAF uh, long-range bombers uh, with their engines running 24 hours a day, uh, being replaced all the time, of course, uh, to take their all family out to the country at a moment's notice should anything happen. And that goes for any other type of catastrophe as well. Because we take the system that we live in for granted as long as it's going. We adapt to it. In fact, we're raised and, and taught to adapt to it by those who own it and rule it, to those who are the owners of the big uh, factories and all the rest of it that we're, that we're so used to during the industrial era up until fairly recently. And it's through your education system, too. You're really taught to go into that system and work and don't think too far beyond that. And most people really don't. They raise their families like in factory towns like Detroit and so on. And they went through the boom times and they partied at weekends and they had their clubs for the working class and all that. And they were having what they thought was a good life. And then, of course, uh, at the very end, the plug was pulled and down they went. Now it's, it's, a, it's incredible. I'll be mentioning tonight about a, a, a video, in fact, that the BBC did on it and it's, it's quite astounding what's happened there with all these empty buildings and hotels and, and um, apartment buildings and houses everywhere just left uh, with furniture and everything that people just evacuated at a moment's notice and got out because there was a lot of violence too and there still is a lot of violence here as well. To give you an idea of it, the BBC did the program and it's called, in fact, Requiem uh, for Detroit. 
and you might be able to find that up on uh, one of the, the, the YouTube sites or something, or do a search for it. But it says here that it was um, uh, Julian Temple's episode Image for Requiem for Detroit. The new film's a vivid evocation of an apocalyptic vision, a slow-motion Katrina that has had many more victims. Detroit was once America's fourth-largest city. And it goes on about its history. There's a lot of that's in the video. You'll see the boom times and the partying and the fun and all the rest of it. And then you see it going down uh, in the fires. That had the riots there too. And then, of course, more um, more job losses because the Japanese were flooding the, the country with smaller cars. And they refused to bring down the size of their models. And it was a series of events. that The whole thing was left in a catastrophe. And what was amazing, too, was towards the end of it, as, as they're taking you through the, these deserted, um, semi-deserted streets, uh, you'd hear gunshots here and there and screams here and there, too, because the, the violence is, is out of control. The cops don't even bother going down there anymore. And then you have the eternal optimists. Uh, uh, the new hippie types are moving in. Uh, and, and the end of the thing leaves you with this idea they could turn it all into gardens and start farming and grow their own foods. Uh, it's a lovely idea, of course, but remember, too, you're still going to be taxed on all of that, which means you've got to sell it. And that's if you can stop all the, all the, the gangs that are there from robbing you of your goods because they're not going to work and plant anything, you see. And... Uh, and really what you would have anyway is a, a form of uh, subsistence farming, if you were lucky. If you were lucky, subsistence. And, and they think this is a good idea for collectivism. That's really what was behind the very end of it. That's how they left you with this particular documentary. But the rest of it was very, very, very good indeed. And there's so much to see about human nature and how we are manipulated and the massive propaganda from those at the top, let the good times roll. You've never had it so good and all that kind of stuff. And the people believed it. And for a little while, they had a little taste of it, you see. But as always, they're still the workers, and at the end, there's nothing left for you. You're, you're broke. When the job stop, you're broke. And then I thought about um, another one. It was called um, Collapse, Law and Order in Johannesburg. Someone had sent me on disc. I can't use my wonderful high-speed satellite here because they restrict me and don't let me watch videos. Some people send me discs. And, and this was an incredible portrayal of life in modern Johannesburg uh, where everybody's evacuated out of it. You find all the different groups have moved in there from different parts of Africa, still coming in all the time. And the place is an absolute shambles. Nothing works. And it's run by gangs. Literally gangs. Each gang really is a small tribe. They form their tribes very quickly. And even the security companies, they kind of work alongside the police um, with a different agreements of, of money exchanges and so on, uh, trying to regain properties for their owners and so on, and, and chase all these people out, have sh uh, street battles, shooting battles with the gangs. And it's just incredible how everything works there. But you'll see the hardened cases, too, of long-term long uh, chaos and poverty, chaos through many, many years of uh, struggles and so on and fights and riots and changes of ownership of land 
and systems. You'll see some of the people there who are born killers, raised quite natural, cold-blooded killers. And a couple of them are actually interviewed by this very kind of naive English uh, interviewer uh, who really didn't get the message at times because he asked some really stupid questions to these guys. And if it wasn't for his interpreter trying to help him out, I think he might have been plugged himself. But it's well worth watching to see what can happen. You see, when the system collapses, that's the point of it all. The system collapses. And the big boys move out with their money and the know-how and their organization. They move out. And that's what's left. And it, it reminded me right off of, of, of Detroit exactly the same way. That's the future, you see. And interestingly, in the movie on Detroit, an elderly lady at the, at the end of it who's kind of promoting this is wonderful, they're all gardening and that sort of stuff. Um, she thought this would be a, a prototype. This is where it's all happening, she says, as a lesson for America, you know. And again, for the very optimistic, there's lots of optimistic people out there who think in a kind of new-agey fashion they can go back to the land and just plant away and grow their own stuff and have their little harvest parties and stuff. They don't realize, no, you're living amongst gangs as well, massive criminal elements, just like Johannesburg. And those guys live off you. That's how they live. They live off of you. And they wouldn't let you have your little paradise. Neither would the state either, because they'll still want taxis and everything else, and you'll need licenses to operate and all that kind of stuff. So when systems go down, believe you me, you you see, you see that the havoc and the chaos. Some people sniff it before it happens and they get out. That's what's been happening over the last few years in some of the countries in the West here. They know what's coming down. And when you see your countries building the largest military bases and cities in the Middle East, they're going to last 100 to 150, maybe 200 years, and super cities across the world, you better believe they're preparing to get out for themselves. Back in the 60s, they knew that this would eventually come. Gene Kirkpatrick was the one who came up with the idea rather than this is going to be the inevitable, the inevitable route that America and the West must take to the Middle East, she said. So rather than go in there when things happen and build temporary bases, let's go in and build permanent ones that will last 100, 150 years. And you must see what they've been building over in Iraq. It's, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So they'll have an army over there, and believe you me, they'll have an elite to move in to the cities inside these massive areas, living very well. And it would make strategic sense as well, because would you want to be an elite living within America if you brought it down? Think about that. Think very hard about that. Or would you rather have a well-equipped army somewhere else and living inside that well-equipped army surrounded by people who don't have very much to fight you with. These, these things have all been discussed in, in high places over many, many, many years. We've heard about continuity of government. Did people realize in the U.S. that 10 years ago they were building bases in Australia for the continuity of the, the U.S. government from Australia? 
Money's no object. So whatever choices they have, whatever possibilities may come up, they plan and prepare for, even if they don't use them. But we live our little naive lives here, thinking that the, the iPhones and so on will keep getting churned out, we can play and all that kind of stuff, and somehow money will trickle down to us and we can carry on forever, even though they're telling us all that this crisis hasn't hit you yet. It's financial crisis. It's all planned this way, of course. As I say, they knew back in the 60s. They, they have think tanks that have all the data that look forward all the time. What's coming next? Where would this lead to? How long can this go on? And I continue on this theme when I come back from this break. This is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, talking about what happens when the system breaks apart, mainly because those who rule the system with their systems of money and connections and infrastructure pull out of it, and they leave it behind to collapse. That's happened down through history when elites move out. And we've had so many clues over many, many years that the same thing, of course, is planned for us as well. All this stuff about austerity, get get used to austerity in a post-consuming society. Well, what do you think that means? What do you think it means? That, are they trying to get us to behave ourselves as, as we end up learning how to be poor? I mean, really poor. You know, on the, on the knife's edge sort of thing. Because they're, they're talking really about subsistence eventually. What do you think all these well-funded organizations under the UN's umbrella to do with the environment and the ecology are all really about? I've read the articles from their own websites. These characters attend these global meetings with your leaders of governments. They have members on the boards of your governments as appointees, and they've said they could never allow another U.S. to develop anywhere in the world with its manufacturing and all the rest of it. It must never be allowed to happen again. They've all said the same kind of things, all of them. They'd like us all to be wearing grass skirts, you see, and uh, just working happily planting things and um, living a very simple life. agricultural life, maybe go back to worshipping the moon or something in harvest time. Uh, That's how they'd like to have us. And that could be done, by the way. Anything can be done with humanity over time. Plato said you only have to teach one generation, they'll teach the next. The first generation you're teaching might think it a bit weird, but if you force them under under threat of violence, they'll, they'll, they'll learn it all right. And the children will learn it and think it's normal and carry on from there. All these kind of experiments have been done in the past. And I say, when you look at what's happened, at examples we have on the go now, with, with places have gone down in so-called failed states and so on, it, it can happen anywhere, anywhere at all, within any so-called civilized nation, anywhere at all. So I'll put those links up. For these articles, you have to search yourself for the BBC one on the Requiem for Detroit, but you've got to see it. You've got to see it. And also do the same for 
the one for, for, for Africa collapse, law and order in Johannesburg, it is, you've got to see it. It should be a lesson to us all. And then you tie this in with this article here from the German papers, the Deutsche Welle. It says, um, experts are concerned that the continuing financial crisis and associated austerity measures could lead to global social unrest should conditions worsen and populations lose faith and patience in their governments. Since at the end of 2008, Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, painted a grim picture of the future when he said that the financial crisis, which was just beginning to have a global impact, could lead to social unrest and political instability and could exacerbate many other problems facing humanity. The UN chief warned that today's financial crisis will become tomorrow's human crisis and that the shockwaves from the financial crash, if not handled properly, could compound with other major threats such as climate change, food insecurity, and the terrible persistence of extreme poverty. A month later, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the head of the International Monetary Fund, said that social unrest may happen in many countries, including advanced economies, if governments fail to adequately respond to the financial crisis. In May last year, in the midst of the collapse, Robert Zelik, head of the World Bank, also warned that the global economic crisis could lead to serious social upheaval. If we do know or do not take measures, there is a risk of a serious human and social crisis with very serious political implications, he said. Then they give you Greece as an example, but it's happening elsewhere. Since with debt-written Greece experiencing periods of strikes, protests and riots and other governments around the world beginning to feel the anger of societies rallying against them, the human crisis of tomorrow that Ban Ki-moon spoke of two years ago looks closer today than at any other time since this current financial crisis, the worst since 1929, began. Hundreds of thousands of demonstrators have been mobilized across Greece over the past few weeks, by the left-wing parties and trade unions protesting the austerity measures agreed by the Greek government with the European Union and the IMF. According to those organizing the protest, Greeks is a tinderbox. We expect a social explosion sometime soon, the Secretary-General of the Greek Republic Sector Union, Adedi, told reporters. The possibility of the IMF asking for more measures will trigger this. And you know, the, the debt, even though it's all a joke anyway, because money is really a joke and all this banking con game is a joke, but it's a power structure of control. That's how it, see, even though it's a, all a con game, it's, it's a rigged structure that holds its own rigged structure together. And there's no way that any country is going to pay this off. Because you're, they're borrowing billions and billions and bi- trillions, in fact. Everybody's borrowing trillions of, of dollars or euros to plug a hole, supposedly, to get investors to start getting confidence again. The same investors that sunk us the last time, by the way. And to give these countries enough money to start paying the interest only off of their loans. This con game's gone on too long. We haven't paid it off from World War II yet. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. 
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix, just putting a few things together to show people how tenuous really our lives are and the systems in which we live, especially when they've been planned to fail, obviously. They could have kept the bubbles going forever, they've done it long enough, that's all really the stock market is. It's a lot of optimism, they must create massive optimism. The first rule, in fact, for people who uh, are involved in investing and and the economists is never to say bad news to the public. And so they lie and tell you nice, wonderful things that you want to hear and you invest in them. And that's how the stock market really works. And so when you remember, too, that it was Bush himself that came out and told the American nation uh, that this could be the worst disaster since the Great Depression, that was a signal that someone had given him the nod to say this because you'd never tell the public that, never, nor the investors either. Because as soon as you tell them, everyone pulls out the cash. And down it goes. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And at the same time, too, we found out a few years before that, for people can remember, the head of the U.S. Treasury had said they were not going to pump money into the stock market as it always had done before. Always had done. You ever wonder why, when American stocks were down towards the evening, there was a sudden injection in there and boom, up it went again. Well, the Treasury had been pumping it up for about 30 years. They've been doing that all along. But he said, we're not doing it anymore. We're going to let the market flow its own way. Well, the inevitable had to happen. It was time. Everything's planned in time. And no one works on their own and just makes a decision and lets it happen. It's all discussed at big high-level meetings with the guys who run and own the system. Getting back to this this article here from the German newspaper, uh, as it talks about the the government's bracing for popular revolt as crisis deepens. It says Spain's largest uh, union, uh, Comisiones Ombreras, has been talking about calling a general strike to protest against the Spanish government's planned austerity measures, while fears abound that unrest like that seen in Greece may follow. And now Italy has also signed on. All the European countries have been asked to sign austerity measures. Now, I'd like to see what they're signing. I'd really love to see the documents and exactly how it's worded and what they're signing. What, what do they mean by austerity? Do they list a whole bunch of things you're cutting back on? Are they going to bring in rationing down the road? Because they will bring rationing in down the road, folks. And I'm talking about basic things like food, for instance. Especially now that the big boys have won their long war to gain control of almost the whole world's farming industries. The five big agras own them. They've got everyone at their mercy. It says, Thai soldiers stand guard against some black smoke as anti-government protesters burn tires in downtown Bangkok. Thailand is seen as the worst violence so far, but experts say this level of unrest could happen globally. Globally. There's also been recent public demonstrations against perceived government incompetence and financial irresponsibility in Britain, France and Russia, while the elites... The ruling elites in Japan, Brazil, Israel, Canada, and the United States have all seen protesters take to the streets. In the Balkans and Eastern Europe, there were large strikes last week in Slovenia, Albania, Croatia, Bulgaria, and Romania, which also saw its largest public protest since the fall of communism. Thailand, of course, has seen some of the worst violence with banks set on fire, major department stores attacked, and protesters staging running battles with armed police and the military. The protests against a growing divide between rich and poor and the perceived corruption of the government has also led to a number of deaths. Prolonged strike uh, crisis strokes the fear of global instability. 
It's a feeling amongst experts, again, that's the boys at the top in big think tanks who sit and meet with their masters, that the deep anger brewing in these countries is fermenting worldwide against the same institutions, the same people, and the failure of global capitalism. Anti-capitalist and climate change activists display a large banner. Well, of course they are. You understand within, you understand to the left wing are still Marxist. And they still believe in stroking the fires uh, of, of malcontent and discontent. Make it as bad as it can be. And then the mob rallies and then you jump over their heads like the, like the Bolsheviks did and you seize power. That's a, that's a tenant of, of their, of their technique. And even in the West here, I know the ones here who give stuff out to patriot groups. Big organizations give out wonderful articles to patriot groups. But their intention, as they issue true statements and stuff and what's happening, their intention is to get the, the anger brewing so that they themselves can bring in a Marxist, Trotskyist um, world. So all that's happening too, and most folk don't even realize that. Stir the fire and jump over the heads of the mob that you've used and seize power. So anyway, as I say, um, so here's the, 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 <laughs> the well-funded anti-capitalists and climate change activists, all paid and, and, and financed by the big foundations in the U.S. itself, mainly, like the Rockefellers, display a large banner with the text, Capitalism Kills, as they stage a protest march outside the Bank of England in the city of London and Britain the 1st of April. 2009. But anyway, it says public discontent is growing in countries across the world as governments struggle to solve the crisis. Well, are they really trying to solve it? They knew when they signed the GATT Treaty, because they'd used Britain as a test case first, turning it into a service economy. At the time, the arguments in Britain came out to the public that a service economy was like a dog in a swimming pool paddling water until... It runs out of steam. It's producing nothing. You're passing things around. You're floating and paddling. And that's what service economy is. They knew it cannot last long. They have done the same with the Canada and the States. Because we're now a service economy. Everything's made in China. How did China rise up? Did it rise up with its own, by its, its own bootstraps? No. China was funded into existence by the West. For 20 to 5 years to 30 years, Chinese engineers were being taught in Canadian and U.S. Uh, universities before they had the factories to go back to. And it was the West who GATT treaty, all your leaders signed the GATT treaty on behalf of their masters because you, your leaders do serve their masters to make sure uh, that uh, they'd leave shores and go off to China. And it was heralded as a great thing, great thing. And the taxpayers of the West funded the transfer and the uplifting of their factories and plants across to China. You paid for all of that. And also they had written in their GATT agreement, of course overseen by the United Nations, uh, that we'd also pay for 10 years to each one of these plants for the first 10 years of setting up in case they had any losses, which could be extended for a further period. 
And I watched the people going through their lives, and if you mentioned Gats and so on, what are you talking about? No, they could tell me who the latest bimbo in Hollywood was and so on, but they couldn't tell me about Gat as they started buying their Chinese stuff, and it's made in China, and they never seemed to even notice it, most of them. Except the ones in the factory areas that got laid off. Most folk floated right through it, asked no questions. I'm okay, Jack, I don't want to know. That's a downer, man. Don't talk about that as heavy. That's what they used to say in the hippie days. You know. It's all back again. Anyway, it says here, instability can loosen the fragile hold that many developing countries have on law and order, which can spill out in dangerous ways into the international community, he wrote. What's happening in Greece will spread worldwide as economies decline. Gerald Silente, financial and political trends forecaster and publisher of the Trends Journal, told Deutsche Welle, we will see social unrest growing in all nations which are facing sovereign debt crisis, the most obvious being Spain, Ireland, Portugal, Italy, Iceland, the Ukraine, Hungary, followed by the United Kingdom and the United States. The potential for widespread social unrest in response to the continuing financial crisis has many experts fearing the worst for the world's current political and social structures with dramatic, perhaps catastrophic changes ahead. Then it says, continuing unrest could lead to dramatic scenarios. We could see the rise in power of extreme right governments, secessions of some of the bigger states in the U.S., and more devolution of powers to Scotland, Ulster, and Wales in the U.K. Marie-Helene Carolo, president of the European Laboratory of Political Anticipation, that's quite a name, eh? an economic think tank, told Dutchwell. A similar risk, though, in the longer term exists for China, whose growth cannot survive a chaotic evolution in the rest of the world. And it goes on and on about this. Now, don't think for a minute, as I say, the masters of the world didn't see all this coming. Of course they see it. They plan the world in phases, like a long-range business plan. Everything's a long-range business plan to them. 25 years of this, you know, 50 years of that, 10 years of this, and then a takedown. And you've watched the incredible build-up of an internal military inside the so-called Western countries, uh, and calling them police in different names and so on, sections of police and special police. And you've got an army. They dress like an army to me. They have the machine guns and all the rest of it. They're not policemen. Policemen talk to you as though you're a person. These guys don't. They call you civilians. And they've been trained to see you as a civilian separate from their own little brotherhood, you see. Why do you think they built all of that up? That massive. They've been building it up for years and years and years, even before the latest crisis. That's to handle it as it's taken down. In case all this kind of stuff starts, you see. So... Nothing happens by chance. Everything is always planned well ahead at the top in think tanks and, and world meetings. And, as I say, the masters who they all work for uh, don't just take the advice they're given what's coming and turn a deaf ear and go and play polo. They take, they take this to heart and they prepare for it all. As I say, you've watched the rise of super cities across the world that aren't occupied yet. Who do you think is going to live in them? I've read the reports here, the 90-odd page report that the, the British 
think tank for the Department of Defense for the military and NATO issued a couple of years ago. It's still there in my archives section. And they see all this then. They see all of it coming. all, All of this is coming down. And they talk about continuity of governments and all the rest of it and containing riots and, and even whole cities and so on. And they take down, and eventually they foresee this happening over a period of 30 odd to 50 years. And by the end of 50 years, the future of the world will have gone from a world globalist system to a new type of city state system across the world. That's really what they want where there'll be high technology, high scientific communities and families living in these places with incredible armaments and weaponry. While the rest of the world is turned back to barbarianism around them and and gradually dies off. That was followed by the U.S. military's one about six months later. That's on my archive section too. You should read it. These are the top think tanks for your military, using all their foresight, their intelligence gathering, with all the economists bunged in there too, and so on. At the moment, we're just being managed to see how long they can string it out. See, they'd really like to to train us into a new type of, as I say, village peasant over maybe 20, 30 years, if, if we're willing to go along with it and live on subsistence farming. And... Uh, living in a type of Johannesburg across the world. That's really what they're after. But if that fails, and they can't get the little greeny children who are getting brainwashed right now for exactly that, they, they won't know much else, by the way. They'll know all about sexual orientations and all types of relationships, etc., because they're getting socially engineered. But uh, they'll know nothing really about anything that they'll need to know in, in a, an industrialized society. But they might know how to plant beans, maybe, maybe. And they'll be very, very docile. Have you noticed that too? That's what they're getting trained for. So if that works, they might not have to go through a very fast transition of total disaster. Otherwise, we do. And they're prepared for all emergencies of any kinds, whichever way it goes. Now, people often wonder how we get into these kind of messes. Well, it's to do with human nature, because most people are followers. They're followers, and whenever there's a crisis, they turn to the guy who always appears on the stage, who's got the smooth, velvet tongue, the winning personality and the charm, and he's, he's pretty well always a psychopath. That's really it, you see. The ones who get to the top of the gangs in Africa are psychopaths. The guys love and hate him at the same time that follow him. Love and hate, you see. And they're afraid of him, and they respect that too. They don't respect people that they're unafraid of. But they've always got up to the top in all societies and all ages. The deviant creation of the psychopath always does. And they've got a lot of telltale signs and symptoms. There's an article here, for instance, I've seen it before, but... And I've gone on about psychopaths before in government over many years. Here's a the police chief study finds serial killers and politicians share the same traits. And that was from the Examiner, the 26th of June 2009, it first came out. It says, um, 
Ecrue includes material obtained by the National Association of Chiefs of Police from the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Behavioral Analysis Unit. Psychopathy is a personality disorder manifested in people who use a mixture of charm, manipulation, intimidation, and occasionally violence to control others in order to satisfy their own selfish needs. Although the concept of psychopathy has been well known for centuries, the FBI leads the world in the research effort to develop a series of assessment tools to evaluate the personality traits and behaviours attributable to psychopaths. It's about time the FBI admits this because, you see, Jai Edgar Hoover was one of the worst psychopaths that ever got to the top of the FBI because, you see, they get on top of everything with all of his deviations, which are well known, <laughs> and there's more of it coming out all the time by people who knew him. They get to the top of all departments. Interpersonal traits include glibness, superficial charm, a grandiose sense of self-worth, pathological lying, and the manipulation of others. They have a gift to manipulate other people. They'll tell you what you want to hear. The effective traits include a lack of remorse. They don't feel guilt. And it says, or guilt, shallow affect, that's emotional, a lack of empathy for others and a failure to accept responsibility for their own actions. The lifestyle behaviors include stimulation-seeking behavior. They're often really into weird sexual stuff, often with the same sex or children or whatever, you know. Impulsivity, irresponsibility, parasitic orientation, and a lack of realistic life goals. Research has demonstrated that those criminals who are psychopathic scores vary, ranging from a high degree of psychopathy to some measures of psychopathy. However, not all violent offenders are psychopaths, and not all psychopaths are violent offenders. They get others to do their dirty work for them if they get up in power. Back with more on this after this break. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix, just tying some things together to to help fill in some blanks for people out there who see that everything is so scattered, the information that comes to them, but there's always a, a plan to everything. The world is, is directed, always directed, that's what the UN was set up to do and all the, the groups underneath its umbrella to bring in this nice peasant society across the world and an elite rule of master race basically living in elite cities well-equipped, living in a completely different lifestyle that you couldn't ever imagine. Well, the peasants are uneducated, but they know how to plant beans. Getting back to this article on psychopaths and politicians, it says here, if violent offenders are psychopathic, they're able to assault, rape, and murder without concern for legal, moral, or social consequences. This allows them to do what they want, wherever they want. Ironically, these same traits exist in men and women who are drawn to high-profile and powerful positions in society, including political office holders. The relationship between psychopathy and serial killers is particularly interesting. All psychopaths do not become serial murderers. Rather, serial murderers may possess some or many of the traits consistent with psychopathy. The psychopaths who commit serial murder do not value human life and are extremely callous in their interactions with their victims. However, psychopathy alone does not explain the motivations of a serial killer. It says, what doesn't go unnoticed is the fact that some of the character traits exhibited by serial killers or criminals may be observed within many of the political, in the, in the political arena. 
While not exhibiting physical violence, many political leaders display a varying degree of anger, feigned outrage, and other behaviors. They also lack what most consider a shame mechanism, and that is true. When they run for politics, the mud is smeared on them, the skeletons come out of the closet, and nothing makes them blush, you'll notice. You see, a psychopath doesn't feel emotions, they don't feel shame. So politicians are generally psychopathic in nature. They play the game with each other as they're all benefiting, like gangs of psychopaths. They also get up, mind you, into high positions as CEOs as well, CEOs of corporations, very powerful ones. And they also get up there on top of the military. The military's got a lot to answer for when you really see what's behind it and what's really in it that the public have no idea about. And the sadomasochism that goes on in there, because it's a sadomasochistic institution. It says here, they also lack what most consider the shame mechanism. Quite simply, most serial killers and many professional politicians must mimic what they believe. They observe other peoples and how you react in situations, and they act. They're very good actors. By the way, that's another category of psychopathy, is the hysterical attention-seeking psychopath. They go into acting. Yep. So, it says, what they believe and are appropriate responses to situations they feel, such as sadness, empathy, sympathy, and other human responses to outside stimuli. Understanding psychopathy becomes particularly critical to law enforcement during a serial murder investigation and upon the arrest of a psychopathic serial killer, and so on and so on. Psychopaths are not sensitive to altruistic interview themes, such as sympathy for their victims or remorse or guilt over their crimes. They don't have it. They do possess certain personality traits that can be exploited, particularly their inherent narcissism. They're awfully narcissistic. Selfishness and vanity. That's how you get round them. I mean, you help the, the gang boss. The lesser politicians gather round the top one. I could go on and on and on, but that's quite a lot for tonight, folks. An hour is not enough, is it? From Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada, and please help me out, as I say, use PayPal and so on. It's good night. I mean, your God or your gods go with you.